A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Hello, and welcome to episode 7 of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. We all love to quote scripture to show other people that we know it. We like to seem educated and knowledgeable about the words of God until those very words come back to bite us. Many years ago, there was a famous politician who claimed to be a Bible-believing Christian. When he was asked what his favorite scripture verse was, he said, John 16.3. This was unfortunate for him, and naturally his detractors had a field day with it. Most probably what he meant to say was John 3.16, which is one of, if not the most recognized verses in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Martin Luther claimed that in this single verse was contained the entire message of the Bible. Indeed, God's love for the world does put the entire biblical narrative in perspective. The God of Scripture, the one who creates, who issues commandments, who initiates, who causes everything in the heavens and on earth to function according to his will, that one is love, according to the same evangelist John in his first letter in what is the most succinct definition of God in the Bible, Otheos Agapiestine. God is love. Is it any wonder, then, that people would find John 3.16 appealing? I mean, who isn't for love? What sane person would ever claim to be against love, even in theory? In order to more fully understand what John 3.16 means, and more precisely how it means it, we must, of course, understand these words from the perspective of the entire biblical teaching. Sound bites, clips, isolated verses, we like these because it's easier to twist them into meaning, what we want them to say. In order to hear the teaching of John 3.16, we need to, at the very least, hear it in the context of its placement within the Gospel of John. In the third chapter of John, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, who we are told has come to Jesus by night. This man doesn't understand Jesus' teaching that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Greek word anothen, translated here as again, can also mean from above and has the connotation of coming not from earth but from the heavens, as in radically different, totally new. In the narrative here, Nicodemus zeroes in on the new aspect of the connotation of anothen, as in a new or another time, thus he can't understand the teaching. 
How can a man be born a second time from his mother's womb, which is a human impossibility? He understandably asks, how can these things be? Let's hear what the text says happens next. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved." That of which Jesus speaks and that of which he testifies, what he knows and has seen, is nothing other than the words of Scripture. Jesus bears witness to the Scripture, and yet Nicodemus, the teacher and thus the functional representative of Israel, does not receive it. First, Jesus tells Nicodemus plainly that fact. He is unwilling to receive the testimony of Scripture. Next, Jesus goes straight to the heart of the teaching which is the necessity, in the purview of the God of Scripture, of the Son of Man being lifted up. To say it another way, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross at the hands of men happens according to the will of God. Then Jesus goes further and not only tells Nicodemus what God's will is, but he reveals the motivation behind it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus likens his being lifted up to Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness. Here, he is referencing chapter 21 of Numbers, in which we hear that the people became discouraged on the way from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, and spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. That's verses 5 and 6 of chapter 21. Ingratitude, impatience, lack of trust, you can almost hear their thoughts. What exactly is God doing here? And how will all of this end? God responds to the rebellion by punishment. Many of the people of Israel died. And because scripture works the way it does, this punishment of many was the example to the ones who had been spared death. And the example worked. These came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Notice what the people ask of Moses, that he pray that the Lord take the serpents away. And so Moses prays. And notice what happens next. Verses 8 and 9. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that anyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. God didn't take the serpents away like the people wanted him to. He arranged it so that when a serpent bit anyone, if they looked at the serpent on Moses' pole, they wouldn't die. In other words, if they were obedient to the command given by God through Moses, they would live in spite of being bitten by serpents. In Scripture, God shows his mercy toward a stubborn and rebellious people by pushing through with his plan according to his will in spite of their sin. This teaching, then, is applied to Jesus' death on the cross. The lifting up of the Son of Man happens according to the will of God, so that all who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And it happens in spite of the failure of the same to receive and to keep the commandments of God, which were intended for life. So in the end, God has his way and accomplishes everything according to his will, in spite of the stubbornness and rebellion of his people. We often like to think of love as a wonderful, indescribable emotion. Just see how many volumes of books, how many movie scripts, and how many songs have attempted to describe what love is, to capture the feeling, so to speak, from a human perspective. According to the scriptural teaching, love comes from God. It is intended for good according to his will, and it bestows life ultimately. According to this, love can feel like correction, which in order to be effective, often stings. Thus, Jesus' use of the serpents in the wilderness to teach about the necessity of the cross as an expression of God's love. Although English translations often have eternal life in verse 15 and everlasting life in 16, both are from the same original aeonion. As such, verse 16 is virtually a repetition of verses 14 and 15. 16 replaces, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, with, for God so loved the world, and then arrives at the same conclusion, that all who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So universally revered is this particular scripture verse, John 3.16, that you often see it scrawled on signs and banners at major sporting events. Not even the words themselves, but just the reference, John 3.16. But if you're throwing out a reference to put on your Facebook wall, make sure you at least get it right. Sure, any scripture can be manipulated to sound like God is on our side, cheering us on, but honestly, you might have a pretty hard time explaining why you love John 16.3 so much. And these things they will do to you, because they have not known the Father nor me. This concludes Episode 7 of A Light to the Nations. I look forward to meeting with you again soon. Thanks for listening.